I'm James Gortzman. I'm Kristen Cox. Welcome to the Art of Live Ops podcast. Uh, hey, James. Hey, Kristen. How's it going? Uh, it's going, you know, so, it's going, it's going pretty good. Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, me too. Uh, today we have an issue. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, we can start that <laughs> no, over. No, I, I was actually going to answer your question. I was like, well, you know, COVID and this and a little, you know. I know, I know, right? It's all good. Hey, James, how's it going? It's going pretty good, Kristen. I'm, I'm a little cooped up at home, but but otherwise excited to, to have these virtual conversations to, to kind of give me some virtual space. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to get to talk to all these interesting people. And today uh, we have another interesting person uh, that I believe you invited on. We do. Yeah, I've known Brian for a long time, uh, uh, and Brian is 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 fun because he is he is really he was at the forefront of mobile games uh, and live ops and mobile games. And you know, he was there at the early days of Dragon Veil and and some really cool stuff from from Backflip. I'm Brian Maschinger. I'm the VP of Live Games at Wuga in Berlin, Germany. Uh, I've been here for about three years, actually three years this week. Uh, before that, I was at Backflip Studios in Boulder, Colorado for about six years. Uh, that studio made games like uh, Paper Toss, Ninja, Ragdoll Blaster, Dragon Veil, and before that, a couple of other studios, and then before that, a whole other career as like a wrestling coach and an algebra teacher and a, and a, li- and a licensed minister, not just wow. the internet kind. So, uh, so I've done a bunch of different things, but my, my games career has all been mobile. Uh, and now he is at Wugo from Berlin, uh, another kind of you know cutting edge mobile game company with a lot of advanced live ops. Um, and Brian's really, I think, a, a master practitioner nowadays of, of the art of live ops. And so I think we're going to get some really meaty, fun, you know, deep discussions. And I think there's going to be a lot of really good good value in today's interview. So I, I can't wait to get this get this get this conversation going. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Let's get to it. All right. Well, and, and Dragon Veil was a really notable title. I remember Dragon Veil was one of the first, right around the same time as Smurf Village, if I remember correctly. Yep. It was uh, right around the same time, because uh, I remember there was like the Smurf Berries controversy. Yeah, uh, yeah. About, mm-hmm. about uh, how much how much they cost. And, and, I, and uh, they sort of stepped into that and tread uh, some of those waters right before us, which we appreciated, because they taught us some things to do and some things not to do. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so... So, uh, yeah, Dragon Veil, it was 2011, I think it was maybe like the number four top grossing app on, uh, on the iPhone, number one on the iPad. That was back when there was like not universal SKUs for everything. Right. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a while ago. And then it's actually still running today. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Backflip was bought by Hasbro, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. They were bought by Hasbro. Um, and then they actually just shut down about, uh, roughly a year ago. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of not great at time. <laughs> I've got, um, I'm awesome at the last two weeks and anything beyond that is a bit of a mystery to me. So I always tell people I've got a lot of Ram and terrible hard drive space. Right. Right. You're all with a hot nice, task. Nice metaphor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting to think back at that time though, because when you guys were making Dragon Veil, um, mobile gaming, that we think of today really was not anywhere um, in the same space, right? Like things were, were changing really rapidly. We hadn't really settled into the kind of ubiquitous access that we have now. What were you guys uh, sort of aiming for when, when you guys were conceiving of Dragon Veil, what were your, what were your thoughts and, and um, aspirations? So 
it's uh, two things. I can tell you about some of the inspiration, but I can tell you just from a studio standpoint, we actually released a game called Army of Darkness Defense. And it was mm-hmm. uh, kind of a castle defense game uh, based on the IP of Army of Darkness, the old, mm-hmm. the old movie. Oh, cool. And it was a premium title, and we put we put IAP in it. So it was like mm-hmm. not free to play mm-hmm. or, or, mm-hmm. or pay to play. And, right. and at the time, the sort of the market was like they weren't sure how they felt about in-app purchase. And we designed it so you could play the game, never spend a dime. But if you were impatient or wanted the chainsaw hand early, you could spend money. And we realized we were making so much more money via IAP than we were the premium mm. sales. And then mm. um, on Apple, we had, they had like the free app of the mm-hmm. week, I think it was. And we did that for one week. And all of a sudden, our user base and our revenue just skyrocketed. Yeah. And we thought, mm-hmm. you know, that next game should be really IAP focused. Yeah. Um, right. So, so we were looking at kind of what was out there, what inspired us. Um, and then uh, we saw... You know, you, you, sometimes you're looking for a hole in the market, and sometimes you're just looking for somebody who's making money almost in spite of themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so we saw a couple of games on the market that we thought, how how is this doing so well? We didn't really understand it. So Tapzoo mm-hmm. uh, and, mm-hmm. and and Pocket Frogs. So Pocket Frogs was kind of this uh, uh, genome kind of splicing breeding of your frogs and collection game. And then mm-hmm. Pocket uh, Pocket not Pocket Zoo. What was it called? Tapzu, think, think. Tapzu was, it was just you know build your, build a virtual zoo, but the animals just kind of stood there, but you still <laughs> wanted to collect them and you still wanted to build it, build, uh, build it. And we thought if we could combine those things, where you could have, imagine if those things could live and breathe. Uh, imagine if they were more magical than a giraffe, but a dragon, and uh, and then also, the 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 mixture of what happens when you mix a fire dragon and an ice dragon uh, um, and what are the combinations that can happen there. So it was kind of, that was kind of our inspiration mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. for the game itself. And then I, I would say I really kind of cut my live ops teeth on that game as well, because it was both, both a bit of a content treadmill, like releasing new dragons and, mm-hmm. and new island space and that kind of stuff. But then it was also, you know, how do you run an event uh, um, mm-hmm. You know, how do you think about events? How do you think about engagement? How do you measure? Uh, you know, it was kind of like as big data moved into, mm-hmm. uh, I think, mobile games. That was I was there for most of that on that yeah. one title. Mm-hmm. So did, was that an? I'm oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, was that what you had intended? Were you, did you guys kind of know you were getting on a content treadmill? Did you know you were going to be doing all of these live ops um, activities when you launched the game? No. Uh, I would say we were wholly unprepared for our own success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I remember having a, <laughs> a meeting about how much content did we have when, when we went to soft launch. And then our, our soft launch numbers were so good, we decided to push up the release date without really thinking through how much content do we actually have and how fast do we need to produce it in order to keep people right. happy. Um, so we 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 jumped on a on a treadmill on a treadmill moving much faster than we expected. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. and then you whatever you think, and this is just advice to anybody planning live ops or content production. However fast you think somebody is going to go through your content, you are wrong and they will go faster. Hmm. Um, especially because in a free-to-play economy, you are literally selling them 
the ability to move faster usually right right um and so it's it's uh people are going to move a little bit faster than you think and i think we thought we had 30 days of content and it ended up being like nine oh, wow yeah nice. I, I was going to ask about the technology because if you were just getting started kind of the early days you mentioned big data moving into mobile that tells me also you probably were building all of your infrastructure yourselves. And I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of what you built and in what order and how you decided what you needed to, 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 to be successful. Oh, wow. Um, that is a good question. Uh, I would like to uh, reference my earlier comment about my memory. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so this, uh, I, uh, for anybody who has a better memory than me uh, who was on my team, Please forgive me for butchering this if I do. Um, but from a, a tools perspective, I mean, first it was like, what are we even tracking? Like, what are we even paying attention to? What are the what's the important data? Is it is it the dragons that they uh, that they they buy? Is it the currency that they have on hand? Uh, um, kind of how fast do they go through something? How fast can we actually make it? So I think mm -hmm. a lot of our tools early were kind of pipeline. How do we get dragons out faster? How do we build? Uh, content faster and then when it comes to what we decided to build I also think we listened a lot to the community what mm -hmm. was the things that we thought was going to interest and excite them whether it was a day night cycle or even just item storage uh, mm -hmm. um, and those types of things so I think we um, we listened to them a lot so a lot of the tools were pipeline related and then it was hooking up the data to you know uh, having a tableau dashboard to paying mm -hmm. attention to our our, 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 you know, day-to-day -day retention, being able to pay attention to our monetization and understand like what was a high day, what was a low day, mm -hmm. uh, um, what were people buying, what were they interested in, and then trying to suss out like what was the event cadence. This was an mm -hmm. interesting thing that we needed to figure out, which was, you know, if we ran an event, was it high engagement or low engagement? How did we, you know, how did we build the, uh, uh, the design of that? So was it meant to be was it meant to be challenging or was it meant to be pretty easy? Yeah. Um, how far, how many people got through that? What percentage of people, how did they feel about that? And then when we designed the next event, um, and then what was the, because we, we wanted to avoid sounding like a mattress salesman, which was like <laughs> every weekend, every weekend was like Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and also just recognizing that people have a finite amount of time, energy and money they're willing to invest. Yeah. Uh, and kind of finding a cadence that felt good for them and for us. Actually, let's let's talk about that because you know I, now that I think about it, Kristen, we haven't actually talked too much about sort of event cadences on 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 this podcast yet. And I know that, for example, talking to the folks at, at um, Super Ape, I forget uh, in London, I know they talked a lot about t managing their their event calendar so you never have really big events back to back. You know, you have kind of a really big event where it's super intensive, but then you have a bunch of small events that are much lighter weight to give people kind of recovery time. Uh, not yes. unlike, you know, pacing the tempo of an action movie. We have the big chase scene and then you have a kind of recharge period. Absolutely. Yeah. So, it, so, yeah. So go ahead. I would be curious to hear, especially like you would talk a lot. We're, we're talking a lot about your experience the first time you ever did this, but I maybe talk a little bit about how you approach it now, you know, like now you've had some experience, like when you are going in to do event planning for games now, what are you, what are you thinking about? What are you doing? I would say it's actually a really similar approach. I just now have much more informed hypotheses. 
Um, but each game is different. Each audience is different. Each their capacity uh, 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 and their fatigue is a little bit different. So, um, but I would say it's a very similar methodology. And one of them is just be willing to break it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is just good, <laughs> good advice for live ops. Hopefully, not in a catastrophic way. But um, you kind of have to be willing to push to understand where is the line. Is it? Is it? So we did. I remember specifically on Dragon Veil, we did back to back to back events. So we did mm-hmm. a two week event, a two week event, and a two week event with no. And this was like maybe our seventh, eighth, and ninth event or something. Um, but we did that on purpose because we tried back to back and we saw lower numbers in the second event. Mm. But they were still mm-hmm. better. They were still better than our everyday numbers, our right. non-event numbers, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And then when we looked at the recovery time from just a single event, and then when we did back to back, the recovery time was actually very similar. Mm-hmm. So, so whether you did back to back or just one big event, the recovery time was roughly, you know, a week, a, a week to ten days. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so then we tried three. And by the hmm. way, that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in general, that's a bad idea. If it's the same type of event or that mm-hmm. requires kind of the same thing. And so I've always thought of events as sort of uh, re- requiring usually uh, uh, high engagement uh, mm-hmm. or, or, or uh, um, it's usually high engagement, high reward, low engagement, lower reward. Mm-hmm. Um, but in either case, it's meant to be something that's kind of delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and sometimes it's just nice to come in. I always think of the, um, I always think of like the levels in Mario or the levels where it's just a, it's just a run through the treasure level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like occasionally you need that is like, man, that was intense. I just want to run through some gold coins for a second. And right. if you can design an event, even that feels that way, um, where it's just a day you show up for a day and it's just run through a field of coins. That feels awesome. Uh, to mm-hmm. your players, and it feels like you've rewarded them for for the hard work that they've done. So, yeah. so, so for instance, like right now on June's journey, we have sort of our we have kind of time limited events that have sort of a, a you know maybe it's a weekly or bi weekly cadence. It kind of also depends. It's so much more sophisticated. Now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, um, when does it start? Uh, when does it end? How long is it? Uh, what is the investment required? What are the prizes? There's so much more personalization involved in live ops mm. nowadays as well. Um, so it has really shifted. But the overall kind of a high level, what is what is your your audience's sort of the threshold for engagement? How much time and energy are they willing to put in before you start to break them, uh, or before they mm. just think it feels like a chore? I remember playing EverQuest 2, and I used to love crafting, but then I remember I would come home from work, I would sit down, I would start crafting an EverQuest and realize that I left work to go to work, mm-hmm. um, yep. and, so I, and so I quit, right? So it was no longer delightful. I was no, now I was just like, how many wolf pelts do I need today? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think uh, what delights us today is required tomorrow, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and that I think is something that I always think about with events. I, I would love to jump in and, and expand on two points you made just now, the personalization point, And I'd love to know more about how you personalize mm-hmm. uh, and what that looks like in terms of like how, how, how tightly do you, how, how narrowly do you segment? And is it like a one-on-one basis or is it like, you know, a handful of, of segments that you target differently? Like I'd love to learn more about that. Um, and uh, and I'd also like to know about your your forecasting for events. You know, like as you're planning your event calendar, 
how how accurately do you try to forecast what's going to happen and and how 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 sort of on or off are you typically and, and when you're off what does that what does that teach you because i'm very interested in, in this notion of of i'm amazed at how well certain teams can predict their events how they're gonna, are just going to perform yeah um now we're getting into the dangerous. I hope I don't say something I'm going to get in oh, trouble yeah. for, James. Sure, sure. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to uh, to not give too much away here. Of course, I can I can hear the lawyers behind me. <laughs> you can see you can see they're not, but I can feel them. Um, so <laughs> so uh, when it comes to personalization, what I can uh, uh, what I can say is specifically uh, I'm speaking for Wuga. Obviously, we're mm-hmm. part of the Playtika group. Yeah. Um, but this is specifically uh, about Wuga, and I would say one of the reasons we actually really liked Playtika as a partner is I, I would say that they're a bit more sophisticated than we are, and we're we're kind of catching up. Um, but from a personalization standpoint, there's sort of um, there's in-game behaviors, right? So there's kind of like the the you know session length and that kind of stuff that you can know to segment people by. But there's also some kind of psychographic details. Um, what type of player are they? Are they a decorator? Are they somebody, you know, so um, it's also kind of player style as well. So you can kind mm-hmm. of understand uh, the type of player they are based on their behavior. And then um, one of the things that I was really, that I'm really proud of is we did this, um, we did an in-game survey. This was kind of like marketing and product really working together, where we did an in-game survey to understand our players. So it came in their inbox and said, hey, would you be willing to take a survey to help us understand uh, uh, kind of what you want, who you are? And it was it was not a short survey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the bottom of that was like, hey, would you allow us to attach this to your in-game, what, mm. you know, your in-game stuff? And a, a significant portion of folks said, yeah, go ahead, we don't care. And what that helped is that helped us. We handed that over to our data science team uh, to be able to kind of create these five different segments of players, kind of like the the story-driven, non-competitive. Mm-hmm. The, the highly competitive player, the social, uh, you know, the social competitive, the social cooperative. And we had these, you know, sort of different segments of players. And then we were able to kind of tailor some in-game stuff, either messaging uh, or even advertising, looking for those folks. So even at the, mm. the other end of the funnel, trying to create ads that get those types of players into our game. So... And then, and then deliver them, hopefully, things that are useful to them. So a decorator might want... They might want a bundle that has a decoration in it uh, as you know, an isometric item where somebody mm-hmm. who's not much of a decorator, for them, it might be a five-star box or mm. some other kind of so, – so I would say it's a relatively rudimentary application of a pretty good amount of understanding. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I'm fascinated by this. So this was uh, people – self-identifying as Correct. these things through Absolutely. a survey. Um, have you, yeah. and this might be getting too deep, but like, have you gone back to see if people who self-identified the same way actually act similarly in game? Uh, yep. Do, do they? <laughs> uh, m- most of the time, yes, actually. Most of the time, cool. people, people when, you, when they say they're going to be, uh, oh, I really am motivated by this. But then again, it's like, um, it's kind of like when you look at the Bartle types. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> very few people go, I'm a killer. Right, uh, right. <laughs> right. Right, right. But, but especially like 50-year-old women. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who is, who's like a really large portion of our June's Journey audience. Um, mm-hmm. They're not they're like, I'm a killer. But then they are, some of them, fiercely competitive. Yeah, um, right. And, and that's, that's kind of the same thing. So, 
sometimes the verbiage gets in the way, but in general, mm-hmm. people are pretty good at that, about being able to understand why they play a game. That's really fascinating because I think that there's this apocryphal idea that people are very bad at self-identifying themselves so much so that I've actually seen, and I'm, I, I love surveys. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of in-game surveys. So, um, but I'm surprised at how often I hear developers sort of push back and, and say like, well, but we can't really trust anything that players say in a survey. So this is, this is an interesting data point. I, I think it's, it's one of those things that's, you know, trust, but verify, um, mm. uh, which, Again, it's like one of the credos of all things live ops, trust but verify. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, it, it is also their ability to self-identify maybe in the ways that you are thinking and the ways that they are thinking aren't the same. And then right. specifically with our audience, there are a bunch of people who don't consider themselves gamers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, it's, it's trying to, you know, uh, help them understand why they play something. Um, right. So, yeah, I, I would say... I understand where developers is coming from because also all surveys are pre-biased for people who will take a survey. Right. Right. But one, one question I've got is one of the things I've seen some games do is I'll call it the micro survey where you take a survey, but instead of making them sit through a, you know, a 20 question survey all at once, you split it up and you ask one question. Like I think Riot does this sometimes. So they have a whole kind of a, a player sort of assessment team that asks like one question at the end of a level. And, 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 and then they kind of aggregate that over time where they add questions up over time and they actually get a pretty good composite view. I, I don't know if you've, if you've ever done that or, uh, you know. We have not. We've talked about kind of some shorter versions uh, um, or maybe trying to find out specifics. We have run shorter surveys than this yeah. kind of more deep psychographic survey um, to find out specific things. But, like, I would say I would not be surprised if, if Riot is doing something to a degree of sophistication that maybe I am not. <laughs> well, we, yeah. The other, the other question I have is, is about machine learning. And, and I know some, some game developers are starting to apply machine learning to try and sort of ah, let the computer figure out the, 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 the personalization. You know, let the computer figure out who my, my clusters are. Um, and, I, and I'm kind of curious, if you, if, again, without giving anything away you can't talk about, if you've looked at that at all yet. I mean, I would say that our data science team clearly created some models to, to train. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but as far as like the depth of the machine learning, that's probably a step beyond my ability to speak yeah. about intelligently. Um, that's where um, I just look at Vlad, who is our head of data science, <laughs> and just recognize that dude is smarter than I am. And I ask him <laughs> questions, and he, he handles that. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'd love to get back to James's other question, though, so, I, uh, so we don't lose it in the shuffle. Of how much um, forecasting do you do? Do, do you find it useful? Do you, uh, you know, is, is it a part of your process? Yes. So forecasting is a part of our process, I think. Um, I, I mean, I think it sort of has to be, uh, especially, again, in kind of free-to-play and a mobile, uh, user acquisition is such an important mm-hmm. part. And knowing knowing who your audience is, knowing what your revenue is going to be, knowing what those things are going to look like and being able to forecast that with some degree of, of, of accuracy is really important to be able to understand and set your budgets. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, but specifically when it comes to the events, um, we built a dashboard. Uh, so we have a dashboard that says, here's what's going on today. Maybe there's a, a life cycle offer. And for us, a, a life cycle offer is if you hit a certain point of your life cycle, like maybe you hit a certain level or maybe you hit a, a, a certain point in a story, or maybe you hit a certain point in your, uh, uh, your, your diamonds or whatever, and we go, hey, here's a thing. So, so right. um, 
so we have some of those things that are happening, and we have a dashboard that tracks what's going on from our live ops. So is there a limited time event? Is there a lifecycle offer? Uh, is are we being you know promoted? Do we have a, a two by two or a one by one sale? Do we introduce a new uh, a new isometric item? We kind of have like these monthly sets and these seasonal sets that come with things. Um, so we have a dashboard that tracks everything that is happening, kind of on a day a day by day basis. That gets mm-hmm. trained uh, over time, and then when we plan the month ahead, it, you take a look at that and go, oh, okay, here's kind of what we think it will be. So it's it's never pure science, but we, we're trying mm-hmm. to we're trying to get better at it. Nice. Do you set specific? goals for your events. I mean, you definitely talked about early on, a lot of the events are about experimentation and trying to figure out where your rhythm is. Does that carry on? Does that change over time? So, uh, I would say that you, you hopefully get to a cadence where you understand what, what you're doing and why you're doing it and trying to find that kind of optimal, uh, for a while. But like I, like I said, anything that delights your players today will bore them soon. Um, so mm-hmm. you're always looking to find whether it's a new event type uh, whether it's a, a new feature, a new cadence, a, a way to surprise them. So I would say there's always kind of one level of solid planning, and then there's always kind of an experimental track. Yeah, uh, um, that's another like just universal live ops truth you're saying there. <laughs> ab- absolutely. I mean, even even on the UA side, our UA, our UA uh, people have an experimental budget to try mm-hmm. a new channel, to try a new constellation of, of, a, of an ad package. They have these an experimental budget because these people are so numbers driven uh, and so so ROI kind of focused that we, mm-hmm. we, almost, we almost had to section off a portion of the budget to say, please experiment because if we just right. do, if we just do the same thing over and over again, we're never going to innovate and we're never going to get ahead of the competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just reach these local maximas, right? And I think that that is that speaks to, as you said, this interesting cycle that happens in live ops where you're optimizing, 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 but even that, you can't just go down that road. You also have to leave that time for iteration and experimentation. Yeah, I always think of, of there's kind of like three phases of development, right? There's the, the ideation, the, the iteration and the implementation or the optimization. So like you, you always have to be trying to think of the next big idea. It's important that you look at the ideas you've already implemented and see ways to kind of improve them. Uh, and mm-hmm. then sometimes it's just the implementation work, the, uh, just the, the, the bottom line, got to yeah. get some stuff done. Got to get it done. Yeah. So shifting gears a little, um, you, you talked about the longevity of like something like Dragon Veil. And um, this always fascinates me about mobile because I came from more of an MMO background. Um to get that kind of longevity, you know, traditionally the game has to at some point start thinking about the community, right? Not just what's sort of happening at that moment that you're playing the game, but how, how does the community exist for the game? Um, how do you tackle that? I mean, especially having had such a success with something like Dragon Veil, how do you approach that when you're, when you're putting, um, you know, new things together or managing the games you have at Wooga now? How do you think about community on mobile? Um, good question. So again, with Dragon Veil, I cannot state enough that we were so unprepared for our <laughs> success <laughs> right. that the, commu- the community, there was a wikia uh, that jumped up about Dragon Veil, about the content, the releases, the dragons, the breeding combinations. We didn't create it. Fans did. Mm-hmm. And at one point, it was a more useful resource than anything we had internally. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Not uncommon. <clears throat> it, yeah, so, not uncommon. So, so uh, eventually, we're like, and then we, we'd see like crazy fan theories, and then they would. It's almost it was like it was like writers for Lost. You started listening to them too much. Anyway, um, uh, now I can say much more thoughtful about it. Um, uh, so, and, and we had the advantage for June's journey because we had Pearl's Peril as well. So we had kind of a built-in community and because Wuga really started on Facebook, um, mm-hmm. I would say community minded and knowing that where they were was mm. kind of, kind of inherent in, in the, in the genesis of, of the company. So mm-hmm. we've got, you know, we've got, uh, we call them cabbies, but we, we've got our own like groups and subgroups, kind of almost some of those psychographic sort of uh, subgroups mm-hmm. exist on Facebook. There's a decorators group. There's mm-hmm. a there's a compet you know there's a, a, a captain's challenge for Pearl's Peril. There's a bunch of kind of communities and groups that have grown up around how they play the game. And mm-hmm. then I would say we're pretty active as well in our community. In fact, something that I did at both places was we flew members of the community uh, and our fans to our offices. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, uh, uh, we, it was the fanfare, uh, it, uh, backflip. And then for, for June's journey, we flew out some of our fans. They had to put together a video about why mm-hmm. they were like the biggest June's fan. We were able to kind of contact them and we pulled them from all over the world. They all came to Berlin. We showed them around. We took them to like Museum Island to do like a nice dinner. We got the composer of the music of the, of the game to come show up and play music for them live. They got to meet the team and do some Q&A. They got to see one of our new games in development. Um, and so I think we one of the kind of core values at Wuga is being close to our players. Um, mm-hmm. And so for us, I think community is super important. Um, when it comes to tools, I would say um, we're mostly, right now it's kind of mostly, uh, I would say, social media, Facebook and Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. not, you know, we're not really on discord cause our audience isn't on discord. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, so, but I think the, I think it's, it's supercell. I went to supercell to a community event that they had, uh, mm-hmm. like a community experience event and how different it is for each of their games, how they really uh, work mm-hmm. with their community. Cause it's, they kind of just meet them where they are. Right. Well, I would, I would, oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was going to ask about community events. And when you think about your event calendar, what's an example of an event that might be more community minded or cooperative versus an event that might be more, you know, competitive or individual kind of related? Mm-hmm. Or do you, do you even, do, do you even think about sort of events that are designed to boost the community versus individual kind of player engagement? So in the, in the, in, in Pearl, we have the Captain's Challenge in June. Uh, um, we, we just kind of put in, uh, clubs and, and, uh, competitions and then, uh, coming, coming soon, another thing there. Oh, almost said something. Almost yeah. got myself yeah. in, almost <laughs> got myself in yeah. trouble yeah. there. Um, but, uh, and so I, I would say some of those are kind of like miniature community, but not like full uh-huh. community. I would say mm-hmm. some of the things that we have done is like, we've done like, um, it's not in game, but like we have done like an anniversary. So we had a big mm-hmm. anniversary event. So we kept releasing a new video each day on our mm. Facebook, mm-hmm. but we also released a new item or thing in an event in the game every day mm. as well. And so we did nice. those things in tandem to kind of let those things kind of become a feedback chamber for itself. So we have done mm-hmm. some of those things with kind of major major feature releases or anniversaries, but in general, I would say the most recent thing we did was actually with the, um, the WHO, mm-hmm. uh, the, pl- mm-hmm. the, the, the play apart together 
we were one of the, the companies with the play a part together uh, during the, the COVID-19 kind of lockdown to say, hey, it's okay to, to, to play together while you're at home by yourself. Mm-hmm. Nice. So I think a lot of smaller developers tend to be a bit intimidated by community. Um, you know, and they, they tend to kind of um, leave it because they're not really sure how to tackle it. Do you have any advice, right? you know, especially for, for teams that might not have as much history? Um, how do you get started? Um, I can say that we got started, again, when we had to do this at Backflip, we got started because we had a community, but they were just kind of off on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it was... I think make yourself available um, and uh, um, also manage expectations. I think mm-hmm. um, sometimes when, when the community has access to the developer, uh, um, it can, it can uh, uh, quickly sour in one direction or the other. So it's gotta be, I think you can just be clear with folks. Hey, here's, here's, uh, here's what we're going to be doing. Here's how we're going to communicate with you. Here's, here's our goal. Um, um, and, um, you know, we want to hear what you have to say. We will always listen. We won't always do everything that you want. Um, <laughs> because, um, <laughs> to, and, and I think that's actually just kind of an important thing to say to people. Um, mm-hmm. and then uh, for me, I think it's also one of the scary things about community is, um, either not knowing how much the time involvement is going to be, mm. or I think for, for us when we were really small it was also legal. Mm-hmm. Right, we were we were terrified of if somebody draws a dragon and it looks anything like a dragon we were already working on, are we going to get sued? Mm. Right. So, right. so I, I think we we sort of operated out of a position of fear because we were ignorant. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if I was going to start community at a small studio tomorrow, I would say um, if you can, maybe talk to somebody either at a at a, a bigger company. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get some, to get some advice, uh, um, uh, or if you can schedule a session with somebody like uh, about IP, mm-hmm. uh, l- mm-hmm. like legal IP stuff, and just kind of understand where your risks are. If you don't have a legal person on on your staff, maybe you can find someone. There are some great games lawyers out there. Um, I'm not going to plug anybody's name, but uh, <laughs> but, but uh, I'm just saying there's uh, for me. I think you can get over some of those fears just with some information, and yeah. then being as clear as you can. And then one of the things that we did early is we actually stuck with the other platforms on purpose because if we controlled the forum or we controlled everything else, we thought we were owning the liability. Whereas if we Mm -hmm. used, if we used existing platforms that kind of solved a bunch of the problems for us, uh, whether -hmm. whether that be, you know, Facebook or or the the Twitter, like the end user license agreement, that kind of stuff. We knew that we were kind of protected by a layer of other. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I think that um, overall in the games industry, we've seen community become more distributed and more player driven, more sort of player championed yeah. over time. Right. I, I think the days of if you're in a launch a game, you have to have you know, your own forums are kind of over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I remember people were afraid of like Discord. They're like, oh no, it's a forum I don't control. And now it's, I see bigger and bigger games saying, oh no, Discord is our forum solution. Like that is our channel. That is our community solution. Um, yeah. So. And, and just embracing it. Um, you mentioned tools, and you mentioned social media tools, and you mentioned you know Facebook and so on. I want to talk about tools, but but more internal tools, such as and again, let's not talk about anything you can't talk about. But if you could sort of imagine a wish list of like the the, the you know the ideal tools you don't have today, uh, like what would what would be 
on that wish list, what are some things you wish you could do that maybe you can't do, or that you, or that that you you would, if you're designing a new game from scratch, you'd want to have in place to sort of help you be more successful with with operating your game. That is a good question. Um, what is the future of Liveox? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where are we all going? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, for me, the future of Liveox, I, I can think of like features or things, but like when it comes to the the tooling, I would say, I feel like I have, this is going to sound like a cop-out, so I'm going to, mm-hmm. uh, uh, if, if you feel like it's too much of a cop-out, <laughs> okay. I, I invite it. Um, but I think most of the tools, most of the things that I want, I have. And if I don't have it, it's probably because of legal or privacy reasons. Mm-hmm. Meaning, meaning, I wish I could know some some things. Not because I want to be an a hole about it, because I think I could actually design a better experience, or I could do some of these things. But for very good reasons, I don't know a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, I guess if I could wave a magic wand, mm-hmm. it would be for all of the different platforms to magically play nicer from a tool's mm. perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So e- even. Yeah, I just trying to design whether it's somebody's login system versus somebody else's login system that has to be on the same level and the same page and the same priority, and then mm. it, it just becomes as as the as the, the the platforms themselves get into a little bit of a use our stuff contest. Um, I would say for developers, it means we just have to fragment the experience for our players. And that becomes, I think, frustrating. Hmm. Um, so without that, I know that that is a bit vague, um, but like from a, a specific tools, there's nothing that jumps to mind. Like I think, oh, if only I had yeah. X, because I've got a pretty good toolkit and a hell of a team. Um, but but I, I think if I could fix something, it would be the fragmentation of yeah. the inputs and outputs for a whole pile of stuff. So... So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call you I'm not gonna call you out because that was a fine answer. But I, I you, you tantalized us when Kristen asked about the feature of live ops and you said okay look I can think of a bunch of things that are features but then you went to tools okay I'll call you out on that. What are the features <laughs> that are the feature of live ops? Like what what would what are what are happening in games from the player perspective? Do you think that are going to be bigger trends in the future? Yeah. This <laughs> that you can talk about <laughs> without <laughs> no 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 I, listen it's not even that I can talk about it's 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 like. Uh... You know, I got some ideas, man. Um, but it's also uh, anytime you try to predict the future, I can just—I'm going to have this recording on my machine, and I'm going to listen to it six months from now uh, because I won't remember what I said six months from now, right. and then I'm going to have to listen to it and realize how stupid I sound. Um, but um, I think you're going to see sort of the the battle pass system that only exists in kind of highly competitive games. I think you're going to mm-hmm. see versions of that move more towards casual because, uh, like, I just completed the Battle Pass season for Warzone myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that that does really well is it rewards both engagement and purchases. It mm. rewards mm-hmm. both of those things really well. Um, and so, and I, it also kind of drove me forward where I, I was altering my, <laughs> I was altering my behavior to get to the next thing. Or I mm-hmm. would I would fire up the game just to log in to get a thing. So I think you'll see casual games find ways to take the lessons from a battle pass 
and apply them to a non-competitive game. I think that that will happen. Um, uh, two other things. One of them already exists, but I, I'm surprised it hasn't become more uh, uh, proliferated, which is kind of the piggy bank system, which is mm-hmm. uh, rewarding my behavior, throwing, throwing coins in a piggy bank, and then making me feel clever about breaking open that piggy bank and handing you three bucks. Because mm-hmm. because I can make that thing worth twenty dollars or fifty dollars uh, uh, according to your own tools. I feel smart about breaking it open and giving you five bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that to me is sort of like that kind of win-win scenario. And then um, one of the things that I think I would like to see us get to is um, is gift giving as a mm-hmm. As a, as a monetization, as a real monetization thing, because, mm-hmm. um, my mother would never spend $5 on a game for herself, mm-hmm. but she would for me in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people who play games. They might not pay for something for themselves, but they would do that for somebody else mm-hmm. for kind of that community. Like you talked about that kind of community event, um, and that community mindset. If I could spend money to help everyone benefit, people would do that. The problem is, is the moment you allow somebody to do that, <clears throat> you're just opening yourself to hackers and cheaters and ruining your yeah. economy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but, but that is, that to me is, it is a, a purchase psychology that exists in the world that does not exist very well digitally. We, mm-hmm. cert- we certainly see that, I think, in, in certain Korean multiplayer games where you have, for example, guilds where there's so much guild versus guild competition instead of like, I almost think of it like the, like in the bad news bears, you always have like the rich kid team and like, you know, some kid's father bought all the uniforms for the team, you know, it's sort of the same thing. It's like, it's like, okay, I've got the money and I'm willing to buy the uniforms for the rest of the team. So we're, we're collectively more competitive. You know, I think that that's a mechanic. I think you do see in a lot of Asian games. Um, yeah. Kind of riffing and on and your, I agree. I agree. You see that like you see it in some kind of guild competitive games. Um, I actually went to the, the Games Beat Summit a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and one of the sessions was with uh, a self-identifying whale, mm. uh, his term, who had spent mm-hmm. six figures in a mobile wow. game. Wow. And wow. the whole session was, ask me questions. Right. I love it. It, it was awesome. Um, Are you just giving us an idea for a new podcast, Kristen? We've got to do <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Uh, uh, just, just, and then asking, what could ever get you to play a different game? What could ever, it was, mm-hmm. it, ask Dean Takahashi about it. I'm sure he's got it somewhere. Yeah. It, is, uh, it was awesome. But um, yeah, I think, I think that, but, so that exists at a competitive level, but I think that that could also exist in a non-competitive way, just in a, in a, like to be able to send your friend a birthday gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is something yeah, I will that, say I've, I've worked on several MMOs with that feature in it and yeah. it was really nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like you know, it really nice to be able to just like open the store and say I want to buy this, but I just want to buy it for somebody else. Yeah, um, it's very pro-social, as you said, and and it is kind of a shame that it doesn't really exist on mobile because it seems like the interface for that and the networks, the social networks are so connected. Well, I know, again, I know that Genova Chan, and it was Sky Genova Chan was talking about having items in the game that you could only buy as gifts for people. You know that there's, a, I, you know, this notion of mechanics where you're not allowed to buy something for yourself. Um, yeah, which is a whole other level. Yeah, yeah. Of sort of gifting psychology. Um, well, um, I know that we're we're starting to wrap up here, so we have to make sure we ask our favorite yes. question. Yes, yes, yes. Best part well, of the show. Um, my, my favorite question. 
No, our favorite yeah. question. <laughs> our favorite question is, uh, can you share with us a live ops disaster from your history, please? I... Give us your train wreck story. <laughs> I got I, I, I literally have a few of these. Great. You, you can't you can't be doing live ops for a decade and not have more than exactly. one. Exactly. Yep, that's why I mean, it's our that's favorite kind topic. Of the point, right? Especially for people who are starting out. Everyone's got this story. So um, <laughs> it's also the sign of like you can see a live ops veteran when 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 uh, uh, when, when when the fecal matter hits the fan, and, uh, <laughs> and, and 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 a pro's like, oh, this is fine. We're fine. We got this. Yeah. And like the new people are kind of like freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? And you're like, it's going to be fine. And that's like when the old war stories come out. Right, right, um, right. Exactly. So this happened. We had something go wrong recently. That's not the story I will tell. I will tell you the war story I told to calm those people down. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, a bit of context. Uh, in uh, Again, in Dragonvale, it was kind of wild westy for a little bit. And um, but we had an event... Um, and we gave away when the event was over. We gave away an item. Uh, it was like this little ISO, you know, this little ISO item that was gold. It had like a, uh, uh, it had a particle effect on it. We were very proud of it. We were so proud of it. We didn't let you sell it. Um, you couldn't sell this item. And we did this for a couple of events. There was like a thing that you could get that you couldn't even sell. That's how valuable we thought it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but our players were like, I don't want this anymore. And uh, <clears throat> some of them. And then we realized, you know what, the agency to be able to sell that, it's fine. It's fine. It's, mm-hmm. Maybe it's going to increase our tickets when somebody accidentally sells something and they didn't mean to. But if this is what people want, then we should do that. So we, uh, so we had previously unsellable items now needed a sale price. Um, and we had a few currencies in the game. Um, and uh, Dragon Cash was this like abundant resource that kind of scared expon- so scaled exponentially with you uh, as you mm-hmm. as you leveled up. And um, if you even like if you spent a dollar early in the game and spent a dollar late in the game, the amount of Dragon Cash you got was wildly different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This was not true for gems. Gems gems was linear. Uh, they were a constant. Uh, um, they were they were our hard currency. And like four thousand gems is like a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And um, <laughs> so you can see where this, this is going. going. Yeah. yeah, of course. Uh, so, so uh, one of my designers uh, accidentally set the sale price in gems, not dragon cash. Mm. And so, for it was giving it was like for thousands of oh gems. My gosh. And so, yeah, with one with one typo, we gave away three point four million dollars worth of hard currency. Ooh! Wow! And then I had to go take it away. So we had, to, we had to go into all of the game states to remove it from all the people that we that, that had uh, sold that item. But we didn't. If they sold the item, got the gems, and used the gems, uh, yeah, they were faster than we were, and we just took that on the chin. Um, but I, the, the look, the ashen look of, of terror in that, guy's, in that guy's face when he realized he accidentally gave away over $3 million. Yeah, Ooh. yeah was was uh, was pretty spectacular for a simple typo. And then speaking of tools, James, we then put in a tool to make sure that any sale, of yeah. any uh, it, it, there was a, a banding system, so nothing could sell above a certain amount without triggering a warning, did you mean to do this? Right, right, right. Right, nice. I love that. That's cool. 
Nice. Thank That's you. a good one. That's a very expensive typo. That may be the most expensive typo we've ever had on this show. Yeah. It's, it, it was impressive. And I remember him, he's like, he's like, he's ready to pack up his desk. He's like, I'm assuming. Yeah. I'm oh. Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 no. Do you have any idea how expensive it was to train you? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just <laughs> paid $3.4 million on your education. You, you will never make this mistake again. You will yeah. tell the story to anyone who comes after you. You will make sure no one else makes yeah. this mistake again. Totally. Uh, and then eventually, you know, we, we took it away anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, cool. Any, well, any, great. any final words of wisdom? Any, any last thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I would say, um, I, I think of live ops as, um, at a, at a super high level is my job is to create win-win scenarios. Mm. And I think, I think more people would benefit from understanding if we can create a win-win scenario where both, both the player and the developer are happy with our live ops, happy with the event, happy with our prices, happy with the purchasing. Um, you know, a happy customer is a return customer, a return customer make, makes a happy corporate. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I just think, if you can think of if you can think of live ops as a, a an opportunity to create win win scenarios, and you can consider monetization like a promise. Um, if you spend five bucks, I promise you're going to feel like it was worth it. If that's how you think about those things, then I think you'll just design you will design and implement better systems for your players for the longevity of your games. It's a great message. That's awesome. That. Thank you. Perfect, perfect yeah, way to thank close. You so thank much. you. That was really fun, Brian. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, James. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for listening to the Art of Live Ops podcast. If you liked what you heard, remember to rate, review, and subscribe so others can find us. And visit playfab.com for more information on solutions for all your Live Ops needs. Thanks for tuning in.